about 10 years ago, we, uh, my family and I, we went on a trip to Mexico. And I got on the plane and I had had, I knew a cracked molar, very finely cracked, and I just ignored it. Because in your 20s, that's what you do about health stuff, is just ignore it. So I didn't do anything about it, got on the plane, it never bothered me. But boy, when that plane got up in the air, it lit up like you wouldn't believe. The pressure changes, and my, my, I'm just sweating, and I, I couldn't look up, and I just had my hands down like this. And uh, it was a long flight, because we had, it was just, it wasn't laid out the best. We had a layover, so we have a layover in Dallas. We get out of the plane. We immediately go and buy ibuprofen. We get some anti-inflammatories. I take them. World's longest layover. We get back on the plane, go back in the air, and as the ibuprofen's wearing off, it's just hitting me deeper and deeper. I'm sweating, and I'm hunched over like this, and I'm looking at the clock. I'm looking at it because I, I, I'm not going to take it too rapid. It's not good for you, so I wait, and finally the hours pass. I can take it again, but I had no water because I had missed the cart because I was too busy in my own little tube of pain. And uh, so my brother, he flags down the stewardess, and he very loudly says in the plane, excuse me, could we get some water so my brother can take his meds? He has very serious dental issues. Now, my family on the plane, I have it on good authority from them, that it actually sounded a lot more like what he said was, excuse me, can we have some water so my brother can take his meds? He has very serious mental issues. <laughs> and the whole time I'm selling it, I'm, I'm just like this, oh, <laughs> Like any minute, but get me water before I kill again. They said people on the plane nervously looked at each other. Somewhere the air marshal did one of these, I'm sure. Just it was, uh, and then I landed and I got a root canal in Mexico. Boy, was that a trip. Um, but uh, that 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 ride in the plane was rough. And when you're in there, you get the different thoughts. You get like, man, I wish I never came. I wish I just stayed home. I, I, and then you, then you think, no, 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 we're going to land soon. We'll be in Mazatlan. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm here with my whole family. It'll be good. And you, you go back and forth. And I feel like if I could travel through time and I were to go back and counsel my own self, I'd probably have to say, I know that this hurts really bad as I can remember it. And it's going to hurt. And in fact, they don't do the best root canals in Mazatlan, Mexico. So when you come back, you realize he missed a nerve and it's going to hurt again. But you know what? In the end, you're going to be really grateful for this plane ride because of the destination, because of where you're going. Yeah, it's not going to be good. You're not going to love the tooth pain. You're not going to be grateful for it. But the plane ride that brought it on, you'll be grateful for it in the end because the memories are worth it where you're going. Life is full of airplane root canal moments. And the strategy is to always remember where we're headed. I'm going to do something I don't do very often. I'm going to do that thing that creative directors do, where they tell you the end at the beginning. This is the point of everything I'm talking about today. The key to being grateful in hard times is to live with an eternal perspective. The key to being grateful in hard times is to live with an eternal perspective. I want to, we've been on a series on thankfulness, and I wanted to read one particular story of this today. It's very remarkable. And before we get into it, it's important to know the context of the letter we're reading. Paul writes these letters. They're loaded with context. One of the reasons why he's hard to understand. And so it's best to know what's going on. Uh, his letter to the Philippians is a remarkable one. You see, it's a letter to dear friends. 
There's some churches that were hard and stressful and difficult. This is one of those ones that was a blessing to Paul. They partnered in the gospel. Uh, they were good with him. It's just those people you turn to when things are out of control. At my house, there's times that we've got all these grandkids. They're loud. They're running around. People are having like these very serious conversations. And me and my brother-in-law, Brad, will disappear to a quiet room. And we sit down. We say nothing to each other. Best time I spend with Brad all day. <laughs> Get in there, iPad, phone. There could be a game on. Something amazing happens. We don't talk about it. We went in there for quiet, and we, we mutually understand this. There's just those people you go to to calm down, like a friend that you would speak to in a hard time when it feels like everybody's against you, but they're not. This is a comforting uh, church to be associating with, and it's been a comfort to him in hard times. With uh, He's in Rome at this time. He's imprisoned in Rome. There's even drama happening in that church, which has been a great example church for a long time. You've always got the problem child, Corinth. They're always there to stir stuff up. But Philippi was special, and they were always with him. And when they heard he was in prison, it was a, something they needed to act on. So they send a man uh, whose name is, uh, I wrote it down so I can remember how to say it, Epaphroditus, which sounds like something you could get a vaccination for. Epaphroditus goes to Paul to comfort him, to be with him, to attend to his needs in Rome. So he leaves Philippi, goes there. And when he, he goes back, the, I guess no matter how you tell a story of, hey, you know, the guy we love, yeah, he's in chains. It just doesn't sound good. The church grows more anxious when they hear a description, and it's been deeply troubling to them. So he writes this letter very candidly to very honestly say what it's like, his experience right now, so that it would give them peace that he is stronger in spirit than his body and chains might look. There's this thing that happens in, in public figures if they get very sick or maybe a, a failed assassination attempt. It's very rapid that, that whether it's the White House, royal family, whatever it is, they're going to get them out on that big balcony and everyone can see they're fine. They do that very quickly because they want people to feel the sense of peace that they're okay. This is sort of like that. Sort of a, this public figure letting people know what is really going on and what it's like for him. Paul's writing to tell them not to worry about them because he is rejoicing in chains. And I got to tell you, this is what's interesting. It's a prison epistle, meaning he's a prisoner when he wrote it. And while we, we name titles of Bibles, he, he didn't actually name it that. It had no title. We gave him that throughout church history. Philippians, because it's written to them. Its alternate title in church history is the Epistle of Rejoicing, because it's one of the main topics that comes up in it. So let's read uh, a little bit of it today. So we're going to get into uh, an intro here. He begins to speak about what it's like being in prison. He needs to tell them this. So we're going to start in Philippians 1, verse 12. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because, uh, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul gave up everything for this. He really did. He, he was rooted in a, in a group, and I don't think we often think about how much he gave up. Because we, in today's society, we give up less, actually, to be a Christian. You think about all the things you do give up. 
and the things that can be difficult and the, the honor games and things that become more challenging as people think they know all of your opinions on matters. It becomes difficult, but he gave up a lot more. He is completely put out of his nation. The, the Jewish society had a very strong opinion of what they thought of the Christian group. They considered it a cult, and to be part of it, you were put out of that group. And he is famously unmarried. We know that from his epistles, which is odd, because basically all Jewish men were married. They say that the chances of, the, the, of him being betrothed before his, uh, before his conversion is extremely high. It would have been weird if a Pharisee, a Pharisee, as he describes himself in part of a prominent family, had no arranged marriage by the point he got to that age in his life, the most likely scenario is that Paul was betrothed to be married. And then when he became a Christian, it became such a scandal that all tithes are broken off with him. He would have given up a lot. He would have brought shame on his family. At one point, he's the golden boy. He is uh, one of the brightest of the Pharisees, the kind that if you wanted to, say, oppress a religious group on the other side of the map, you would send this guy because you trust him. He's getting up. He's becoming more official, though he's so young. He once brought honor, and now he brings incredible shame. He gave up everything he once held dear, as he says, and counts it all as lost. And his payment is prison. That's where it landed him. It's easy in injustices like this, and we're at these injustice crossroads, to count those injustices as we feel them. To say things like, I did everything right, God. This is not how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to give your life to God, and it turns out worse. Like, I would have been happier had I not. I would have had a family. I would have had stability. My, my parents would still be talking to me. We've got to give Paul credit for this. He never once doubts. He never, he never doubts at any point in Scripture that doing God's will will bring incredible joy and that it will have a payoff. But he also never placed on that expectation that that payoff would be this side of eternity. For him, his life was something he could count as loss because of his incredible faith that God would reward in the end. It's so important that we understand how and when God will pay uh, for his people and to care for them when the payoff happens, when the blessing happens, the things we're working towards, expectation is everything. There's this interesting video I'm going to show you in a sec, and it's a, it's a study on expectation through the adorable lives of capuchin monkeys. You see, they have this task, they complete it, they get a piece of cucumber, and then they change up the plan. And it's from a TED Talk. Make sure the volume's on from the beginning. Uh, and then we're going to play this video real quick. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece he eats. Uh, then she sees the other one getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now. Gets again cucumber. <laughs> one of the funniest parts is how hard people laugh because they're like, I know, I get it. I feel that way too when I get cucumber and I didn't want it anymore. 
That's amazing because the, the, the monkey was eating cucumber all morning. Totally fine. It was worth a rock. You know, the part of what we... Uh, if we do on our part this expectation that God is going to give us things that he doesn't promise or expect, not the way he does things, it's going to rob us of joy when he does bless us. One of the greatest ways that we rob joy out from under our own selves is by putting on this extreme definition of this is how God must come through for me, for me to interpret that God is good and takes care of me. Because there is not uh, a complaint that he is in prison. He didn't expect to have the world's most comfortable lodging. What he wanted to do and what he expected God to bless him in was to give him more and more opportunities to sow into eternity, to let the gospel be preached. And he is enjoying his time in prison. What can we say? Paul's joy is entirely guarded from being robbed from himself. His desires, they become so intermingled with God's, so locked in and similar to his, that he rejoices at the ability to preach to prison guards. These guards are interesting. The praetorium guard are the ones mentioned here. That's the word even in Greek. And actually, you might notice your Bible has a note that it could be referring to the palace or to the palace guard. Context is probably palace guard. Praetorium was both the guard that lived there and the name of the palace. But they're an interesting guard. They are uh, Caesar's elite personal units, and they are the only legion allowed to operate as a legion inside of Rome. That was a big no-no. One of the ways Julius Caesar made the empire the most nervous is when he brought an operating legion far too close to Italy. You keep them out. They do not want a revolution. And so you cannot be there unless you're the Praetorium Guard. You belong to Caesar. And to keep their loyalties, they're paid the highest. And to keep them intermingled with Caesar's interests, they, they socialize and are the closest with the most elite people in the Roman Empire. And a thing to know about Roman soldiers is that they often were given large tracts of land, made governors and things after a while. This was a high-ranking political position, though we see them as just guards. They're a lot more than that, and the Praetorian in particular. Praetorium guards, our records say that as they patrolled the Praetorium, they had four-hour shifts, meaning that every four hours, Paul got a fresh set of ears, and they had nowhere to go. By order of Caesar, they had to stand right there. Now, uh, we are not Calvinists in Foursquare. We're Wesleyan, meaning we don't believe in irresistible grace. That if you're meant to, if you hear the gospel, you have to give in. But what about irresistible pushiness? Because Paul was good at that. Can you stand next to him for four hours and not get converted? I don't know. But like rotisserie, it's coming in every four hours. These unformed, uh, untrained, haven't heard the gospel yet, Gentiles. And Paul, our great evangelist, to him, this has become a dreamscape. Now, we have the question, were there any converts? Because actually, in this section, Paul doesn't say. Never explicitly says, were there converts? But he's got this little sneaky thing he puts in at the end of the epistle. As he's closing out, he says, all the saints bless you, especially those in Caesar's household. I say, Paul, you sly dog. I think he got some. <laughs> I think that's what he's referring to. Paul loved to spread the gospel because uh, everything about it was for the eternal purpose he dreamed of. And because that eternal purpose is being satisfied, it's being advanced, it's going forward, chains don't sting. And there's an incredible gratitude. He completes his thoughts on this imprisonment saying this, for I know, in verse 19, that through your prayers and God's provision of, this, uh, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me 
will turn out for my deliverance. It may or may not be in your notes, but he's actually quoting the book of Job, that all the hardship I've been to, God will be faithful to me and it will come to my deliverance. And living or dying, he was going to plant a seed. Rome was either going to have to let him keep speaking and teaching and preaching, or the kind of way he says that now people are all the more bold that I'm in chains, they're either going to make a martyr of him and Christianity is going to explode. Paul doesn't know. He has no sense of prophetic understanding as we read this that he's going to die. We get that when he writes to Timothy a few years later. He's writing another prison epistle. We get the sense that he knows. But in this one, he has no idea. But one thing he's confident of, sure of, does not doubt is that this is going to come to mean great things for eternity and it will work out for his good. The plane ride might be difficult, but in living or dying, it will turn out for his good. I heard a similar sentiment to this recently, and I heard it right here in our church. Holly and Tenny came here uh, to speak, they're missionaries to Taiwan. When Tenny was up here speaking, he said something that was so, so provoking to hear it. And so much in my mind, it's the one thing I can remember so clearly from what he said. He was talking about how everyone keeps asking him, being a missionary to Taiwan, what do they make of rising tensions in China surrounding them on what appears to be a a possible invasion? And he said something remarkable. Maybe you remember it too. He said, you know, people are worried about it. He said, I am not. Because of all those communist Chinese come pouring in here, we're going to have so many people to preach to. The gospel is going to cycle through this place, and we're going. And I just, I was sitting there, I thought, that is crazy. He lives in Taipei. That's the big one in Taiwan, right? Am I an idiot? Did I just embarrass myself? The biggest city in Taiwan. He lives there. I think it's Taipei. It was an incredible thing. And it it surprised me to hear, and it really went deep, and it's been uh, something I've thought of over and over again of that incredible kind of faith. That if this goes out the way that I hope and pray it does, the way that it doesn't, God's going to do something incredible in it. And that my purpose isn't forsaken. That just because China might kick down the door in a, in a city state that now temporarily allows the gospel to be freely spread, he's not worried <laughs> that he will lose his calling, that it'll be taken from him and he values it deeply. I've thought about it a lot because uh, human nature, we have this way of getting really committed to something the further we go in. As you start something, it's the least committed you'll ever be, which is why our parents, when we grew up, made us always stick through a commitment at first. If you're going to enroll in soccer, you got to play the whole first season. If you're going to do this, you have to complete it. You have to stick it through. And it can work for us or against us that the further we get in, the more involved we get. And it could be a sport. I'm sure that uh, at some point, the greatest athletes had a flippant interest in the sport. And the more they got into it, the more they got involved, the more they trained their body. It was like, this is what I care about. It can help us drive and get into things that are important. And it can very much work against us in things like money pits. I went to an auto show where this guy had this really, really fancy, very nice Ford Fairlane. And he called it, the, the, the name of the car was the Little Red Money Pit because he, he was like, I can't, I feel uncomfortable, or I feel embarrassed disclosing how much money I went into that, but it's over 100000 into a Ford Fairlane. This guy just pours, and he just shows this car all the time, and I'm sure it started with, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up that old rusty Ford 
on the corner. And then he painted it, put an engine in it, decided to put another engine in it, decided that paint job wasn't good enough, put a better one on it. Leather seats, oh, but it's not Italian leather. And it just keeps going up and up and up. And he's dug in now to the little red money pit. What matters if we're going to choose something and we know that our human nature is going to be the further I dig into the mole hole, the more driven I'm going to be to keep going? What would matter to choose is the right thing to be devoted to. At some point, Holly left America, Tenny left Tonga, they went to Taiwan. They've gotten more and more uh, involved in this ministry that an invasion of a million-man army is now something that they think, hey, maybe God will use that. It's as we get further in on that journey. Before he gets into this, Paul, whenever he, in this letter in particular, when he's sharing very personal details, how he feels and where he's at, what he's going through, he always uses it as the most perfect illustration of what he's teaching. And so before he went into talking about prison, he said this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, I'll say this. There's been this freaky thing happening in Living Way recently where I did not tell Jason I was going to read that, and he read a very similar passage today. Last week when my dad was talking about the God particle and I went on the stuff I was talking about, I never talked to him about that. So I don't know what's going on, but like somehow, I think Jason and I have the same boss is what it is. But what he wants for them to find is what really matters. If you're going to go in and you're going to go all in, Philippians, it would be really good for you to grow and to know, to be able to test and discern, to see what's valuable and invaluable and have wisdom to separate the two. It's his hope, his desire, his prayer for them to devote themselves to the things that matter and the things that are going to matter when they stand before Christ, which are different than the things that we feel and are told every day matter right now. If every day we said, I want to gain things today, they're going to matter when I stand before Christ, we would live extremely different lives. Each day would feel a little different. And we would be all the more grateful for it. Because when you pour yourself into something that really matters, gratitude comes out of that. And the kingdom of God and eternity are what matter most. One day we're going to stand before the Lord. And the things that matter the most on that day are not the same things that we impulsively feel matter now. It's not going to come to the same thing. The, the economy of spiritual matters and the economy of what really mattered in your life should have spent, been spent on is going to turn. And Paul's point is be ready for that shift. We need to grow to find what matters and to live for that. I, and this is the question for us all today. In your heart of hearts, what is it that you want? In your heart of hearts, if you ask yourself, what do I want from serving God? Is it earthly blessing? Is it to have a life of peace? Or is it to subject every other desire to a greatest desire, to stand before God in eternity, and to hear him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? 
gratitude and joy rupture out of a life that is well invested, that went to the right places that I have been in. I've seen people angry in Disneyland and like, come on, you should have fun there. I know you spent so much to get your five kids in here and uh, may God have mercy on your mortgage this month. But hey, you're here. Have some fun. How is it that they can be miserable and someone in chains under the Praetorium Guard can be full of joy? Because joy ruptures when you invest your life in the things that really, really matter, eternally matter. Paul's prayer for the church is still over us today. What now do you discern as something that matters and doesn't matter in your life? What do you think you're going to want to be able to, to show for, the, for today and the next day and the years you spend here in eternity when you stand before the Lord? Because that's still the wisdom that we grow in. And as we grow in that, we can kind of do what Paul told us to do, imitate him as he imitates Christ. That in living or dying, chains or freedom, our joy is untouched. Whether, whether it, war happens in Taiwan or it doesn't, our joy is untouched because it goes beyond this world. Our hope is greater and goes further. So take the wisdom of Jesus on this matter. The things that matter, they're going to look like loving God and loving people because God goes far through eternity and the human soul endures. These things matter. If you want to know what it looks like to do the things today that matter and don't matter, it's going to look like loving God and loving people. It'll look like getting over our personal issues so we can be the best parents we could be. It's going to look like uh, growing up and being a little more mature in our relationships with other people. It's going to look like getting into the Bible again because we've let our devotion slip and to go deep again into the spiritual things that are of God and thanking him for the things we have. The things that matter in life, the things that you'll find after Paul's checklist of look here, find out what matters, discern through it. It'll look like loving God and loving people. So I'm going to pray for us today that we could grow in that kind of wisdom and that we would invest our lives differently, that that gratefulness and gratitude would no longer be contingent on circumstances, that we would remember that a life of gratitude comes out of one well-invested and that keeps eternity on the mind. Or as I said in the beginning, and I repeat now, the key key to being grateful in hard times is to live with an eternal perspective. Lord, this morning, I ask that you would give us the kind of uh, discernment that was once prayed over our uh, ancestors of the faith in Philippi that we too would grow in knowledge and insight and understanding to test and to know what is valuable in this life, what will transfer into eternity. Lord, help us to invest in those things. God, grow our conviction that we can't hang on to the things of this world and have hands that are open at the same time to do the work of eternity. Lord, I pray you'd give us courage for the sacrifice. As we let go of one thing, we can take hold of another. Help us to hope in eternal things, to invest our lives for eternal matters, that our gratitude would abound all the more and more, and we would thank you in the living, in the dying, in the freedom, in the imprisonment, no matter what comes our way. Our roots would not go down simply into the earth, but through it and into eternity. 
thank you, Lord, for that ministry you do in us today as you give us wisdom. In your name I pray. Amen.